I love Audible. Maybe you guys do too, this uh, audiobook streaming company. My family uses their services and myself as well over the last, or at least uh, over the last year. And I saw an Audible commercial recently on uh, Spotify of all places. And uh, it was a great commercial. They, had, they advertised, of course, their services. And as they did, they would cut from, let's say, one gal on her commute to work listening to an audiobook. And then the next day would cut, you know, after a few seconds, cut to a guy chopping wood in the wilderness listening to an audiobook. Cut to another person walking a dog outside listening to an audiobook. And of course, as they did so, they would highlight what it is they are listening to, whether it be, you know, self-help stuff or some mystery novel or some his historic fiction or something like that. And the closes with a guy pulling out his phone. This is the guy chopping wood in the wilderness. He says, I got it with me wherever I go. What are they saying in that commercial? For every season and every acti activity, Audible has you covered. Whether you need career development, general life advice, leisure reading to get your minds off of the most pressing issues of life. Audible is there to help. It's really all about the sufficiency of Audible in every season, in every activity. Audible is here to provide and help. I love it. I use Audible. As one who loves to learn, Audible is awesome. And I'm glad to have it with me wherever I go, so long as my phone is in my pocket for every season and every activity. Now, while Audible services should be appreciated, I think is appreciated by many, Christian, did you know that God has given us something that is of eternal usefulness? Eternal usefulness. Audible might advertise that, but indeed there are books that you may want that aren't on Audible. It is not sufficient. It is finally insufficient. But the Bible... In God's Word, God has given us something sufficient for all of life and doctrine, given us something sufficient to save your souls. It alone is truly sufficient for every season and every move you make in this life. Today we are going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture found in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we are in verses 14 to 17. Join me in turning to there. That is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. This letter, I'll give you some background as you turn there. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who was also a pastor. Paul was being persecuted and jailed by Emperor Nero. This is the mid-60s A.D. He was jailed for being a Christian minister, for preaching the gospel, for being a Christian. And in chapter 4, it seems like he knows exactly where his imprisonment is going to go. It's going to end up in execution. And Paul, as he's chained in prison, writes this letter to Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul is in Rome. Timothy, his young son in the faith, is a pastor in modern-day Turkey, a coastal city in modern-day Turkey. And as he writes, he encourages Timothy to fulfill his ministry, even in the face of his own difficulties within the church, as he deals with false teachers who were troubling and upsetting the church. And this letter is really important. It shows us so clearly what's on the heart of the Apostle Paul and what he thought was his lifeline for all of life. 
and what he knows was Timothy's lifeline as well. I wonder if you were staring at a death sentence, what might be your last words that you might write to your loved ones? What would you write as you were finishing up your earthly life? What advice, what encouragements would you give a loved one, your family members, such that he would remember what you are all about and something that he would receive so that he would know what he should be about? In that situation, what is that thing you would tell him is sufficient? I'll go ahead and read 2 Timothy, and I'll go ahead and read the entire entire chapter 3 there so we get a full picture of our verses, which is 14 to 17. Let's go ahead and look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting from verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, that is in between Christ's death, resurrection, and then His return, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And here's our verses for today. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we look at the sufficiency of Scripture, we see first the task. First, the task. If you're taking notes, the big idea, the theme is the sufficiency of Scripture. From our passage, we see first, point number one, the task, which is there to continue in the Scriptures. It is a call to continue in the Scriptures. Look there at verse 14 again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. This call to continue falls on the heels of what uh, Paul had encouraged Timothy to do in verse 10. He says there in verse 10, go ahead and look there. He says, but as for you, but you have followed. As opposed to the false teachers, right? Those false teachers, they're doing this. They're going from evil to worse, etc., etc. They're teaching false things. But you, Timothy, my son of the faith, have followed me. An apostle of Jesus Christ, you have embraced the gospel. And then in verse 14, he gives him the imperative there. But you now continue. 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. We know from verse 15 that what Timothy has learned and believed and what he's supposed to continue in is there the scriptures. Basically, at that time, he has the Old Testament and other writings. He's looking at there, or he is to think about, basically the Old Testament and how it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the gospel, which is exactly what Paul has been teaching and preaching. So he can say there, continue in the scriptures or the sacred writings, or you know that you've learned those things, continue in them. And at the same time, he says, look, you followed me. Paul, of course, went around preaching how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, continue to follow me and the gospel, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Think for a moment about how this is encouraging, right? This encouragement to, for Timothy to follow in the scriptures, continue in the scriptures. Think about how that's so telling. Think about how that is so telling as he, who's going to finish off his life, tells Timothy to continue in that thing, right? So we're thinking about the sufficiency of Scripture, right? If you're exploring Christianity, we learn so much about what the Christian is to hold on to for all of life. Read this, so let me encourage you to read this letter as if you were writing such a letter. This is, after all, a real letter written by a real human being to real human beings. So if you, once again, had to write your last will and testament to your loved ones, and if you, were thoughtful, if you are thoughtful about it, I'm guessing you're going to want to include information, I mentioned this earlier, again, about who you are, what you are about. You're also going to want your readers to live for what is most important. You're helping them to live and die well. What would your advice be? What would your one piece of advice be that covers their whole entire lives as they're going to live it out until they die? What is that piece of advice, that thing that you're going to hold up to them for to be sufficient? It's an interesting thing to think about whether you are young or old. Young people can think about and play this game as well. Let's say the dominating issue of your life is health. The dominating issue of your life is health, and maybe now you might be fearful about the coronavirus or something like that. You could write, continue to wash your hands. Continue to wash your hands. That would really be telling, wouldn't it? We'd be able to get that letter. We clearly know that you're writing in this time of turmoil, health turmoil. You know that there's some great viral threat going on. It would be really telling if someone writing their last will and testament to their children spoke of why they are to wash their hands, how they are to wash their hands, when they are to wash their hands, what soap to use in washing their hands. If the objective is health, then you write to continue in health. If the dominating issue in your life is comfort through money or success through money, maybe you might be fearful of the stock market pullback that happened this last week. Maybe... You might be fearful of, you know, an upcoming crash or something like that. Wipe out half of your retirement portfolio. You might write, continue to monitor your accounts. Get on that mint.com. Watch the signs, the stock charts. Find other vehicles to invest in. Preserve the money. So you see there, if comfort is the objective through money, then you're going to write about what is the thing that is sufficient. Maybe some of you, in writing, in, maybe you're thinking about writing to your future children. Say, just be nice, or writing to your children now, just be nice to your little sister. 
the objective there maybe is to be the most morally acceptable person, acceptable to everybody around you in society. And so you write, just be nice. Maybe you aim for some sort of temporary family unity based in the grand prized moral quality of niceness. There's a lot to learn about you through such a letter. You see, the same is with Paul, right? So if you're, if you're objectively examining Christianity, you can learn a lot here as, as you read this letter written by a real human being to real human beings. For Paul, though, you recognize he's not talking about comfort. He's in jail. He's not talking about how to get out of jail, how to evade a death sentence. He's not talking about how to secure money. He's not talking about more general morality or living the longest earthly life as possible. It's like almost as he writes this letter to, as, he, as, a, as a soon-to-be-dying man who has suffered greatly for the gospel, as he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, so that teaching him to live and die, it's like he clears the path of all of the things he could write about. Why is it? Because they are finally insufficient. In his last will and testament, he writes here, continue in the scriptures. This speaks to the sufficiency of Scripture. Remember all the troubles Paul and Timothy were facing, loss of life, harsh circumstances in prison. Maybe they had already seen, or he had already seen, Christians torn apart by, once again, wild beasts during the, Nero, the persecution under Nero, or Christians lit up in flames. Timothy and Paul were both facing stress in the church, false teachers leading people astray, anxiety for all the rest of the churches that they helped start. And then don't forget about the stress that such circumstances might cause them as individuals. What is sufficient for these situations? And then all the rest of our own situations, the Scriptures and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We realize, right, that Paul could have said a thousand things to meet a thousand different objectives, but since Paul's comprehensive objective was salvation in Jesus and the salvation of their hearers, and for the Christian to know how to live life in these last days, he speaks of the only thing sufficient to help in every season and in every circumstance for every person, the Scriptures and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Church member, now you all believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but I wonder to what degree your life actually testifies to the belief that Scripture is sufficient. If we believe just how sufficient it is, right, it would show itself in the way that we lean upon the Word of God. As Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path. If, we re if our lives really, if we really believe about the sufficiency of Scripture, it would show ourselves in, in a growing love and growing taste for it. I love your law, Psalm 119.97. It would show itself in how we delight in it and how we want to meditate on it day and night, Psalm 1, verse 2. Or how we desire to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you, Psalm 119, verse 11. But I fear too many of us spend so much time running to other things we think is sufficient. Knowing that Scripture lights the path for God's people, Paul encourages Timothy to help or with help and advice for this life in the lives of his hearers continue in the Scriptures. 
Of course, we need to think briefly about what the Scriptures are. It's the words of God to His people. Jesus was present in the book of John. We know this. Jesus is present with His people. And what does He tell them? He says, well, actually, I need to go away. And, and He also says, and also, there's a lot of stuff, uh, there's a lot of other stuff that I have left to tell you, but I can't tell you. You guys can't handle it now. I'm going to go away. I'm going to send a helper, and He is going to lead you into truth. And that there, I think, is Scripture. As the Spirit inspires, people write, God collects, God uses those writings of His determined people, gathers them together and leads them into the truth there. He goes away and says, here, I want you to feed on this. That is the Word of God. And where has He gone? He's gone to prepare a place for us. That's what it says in John. He needs to go. Gives us the Spirit and the Word. He says, I'm going to come back, but you are going to be led into that truth until I do. We know, we know all of Scripture, right, is God and His grace meeting us where the people are at. You can think of the Ten Commandments and the law. A lot of people find the law to be boring, but if you just think for a moment there about what the law is, you have a reckless people sinning against God. They don't know how to love God. They don't know how, how to love one another. And so God turns up and says, here's a law that will help you do that. Here's a law that's genuinely going to help you know how to love God and love one another and so be my people, representing my righteousness, loving one another to the ends of the earth. Of course, there's multiple functions of the law, but that's certainly one of them. And so he meets us in our need. He shows us. So here, is, it was, he's encouraging Timothy to feed on the, or to continue in the scriptures there. He's saying, continue feeding on that very thing. And then, you know, no wonder before uh, or when... Peter sins against Jesus, and at the end of John, John uh, Peter reinstates, sorry, Jesus reinstates Peter, and he says, look, I want you to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And what is he talking there? He's talking about the word of God. So God's people are to feed upon God's word and do that all the way until they see Jesus Christ face to face. So when we think about the scriptures, think about that. God revealing to us himself showing us the way of salvation. So anyways, that's the task. He's to continue in that task. Continue in the scriptures. He's to do that with certain convictions. This is point number two. So we saw the task. He's to continue in the scriptures. But point number two here, he's to do that with certain convictions. So think point number two, the conviction. The conviction. He says there, continue in the scriptures knowing, look there, but as for you, continue in what you have learned that is, he soaked up the content and firmly believed, that is, he's genuinely convinced of this, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So you see there, right, he's supposed to continue knowing. These are like the reasons for why he is to continue, the reason or the things he's supposed to recall as he continues. He needs to do that with certain convictions. First, knowing from whom you learned it, and then second, Scripture's God-designed function and purpose. Number one, knowing from whom you learned it. And then number two, their God-designed function and purpose. Paul says there, knowing from whom you learned the Scriptures. Who is it that taught him the content of the Scriptures from when he was young? Of course, we know from chapter one that it is his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. They had the faith that now dwells in Timothy himself. And from childhood, it says... Verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So who has he learned it from? That is Lois, his grandmother, his mother, his, his mother Eunice, Paul certainly as well. 
But here, as he call, recall, he wants him to recall all the way back from when he was young. I envision Timothy, right, receiving this letter. Having pleasant and encouraging memories, thinking back to God's providence in giving him a Christian grandmother and Christian mother to teach him about the Lord's salvation in Jesus. Mom and grandma would have probably learned the scriptures for themselves, right, from their teachers. And then they taught it to Timothy, just like your children or maybe the children that you teach at school or the children that you babysit are so fixed on stories. So perhaps Timothy begged his grandma and mother to go on about God's grace and salvation despite Adam and Eve's rebellion. They might, maybe he, he wanted to hear again, right, as his grandmother and mother told him about God's covenants that he makes with Abraham to make him into a people and a nation, and how one from his line would go and deliver and be the savior of nations. Maybe he would desire to hear David and Goliath's story again and about how the Lord is faithful. Or maybe Israel, despite their continual wandering away from God's or God to so-called gods, God nevertheless does not abandon them. And how despite their sin, God promised to send the chosen one, that is the Messiah, to bear their transgressions and sins on their behalf. And how one day, one coming day, think of Isaiah, for example, the Lord would move in a new way to bring about restoration by the Spirit, the Messiah's Spirit, the Spirit upon His people. And maybe He, he would beg them, right, keep going. I used to tell my kids a story about, uh, let's say, uh, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan, and we called it the man with the owies. And, the, ki and uh, you know, the kids would say, can you tell us the story again about the man with the owies? That's what I remember Timothy maybe thinking back to how his grandmother and mother raised him to know the scriptures. I have pleasant memories of the same. Not all of my childhood memories, as some of you guys might know, are pleasant, but many are pleasant. And many make me appreciate the grace of God in giving me Christian parents. My mother told me the gospel when I was six years old. She told me that I was a sinner and could be saved if I call upon the name of Jesus. I remember that basically like it is yesterday. I got memories of my mom reading to me this devotional, Little Visits with God. Right? Those are precious memories, unappreciated moments. Let's be clear. In, those, in that moment, many of those moments were un, absolutely unappreciated. Unappreciated moments at the time. But now that I am a Christian... They're beloved memories. And then add to that all the times that I saw her reading the Bible and praying to God through all the ups and downs in her life, even as she told me stories about how she was so angry at God one time in her own sin, she threw the Bible in the closet and locked it in there and refused to take it out until she was brought to her knees and convicted of her own sin. How she took it out again and started reading and praying to God and had repented. And you know, now that I'm a Christian, right, then again, so a lot of that was unappreciated, but now I'm a Christian, you know what I saw in my, my mom's life? I saw evidence for the sufficiency of Scripture. You see there the power of Scripture. As my mom lived out the Christian faith, and I saw her Christian character in going back to the Word despite her sin, she was evidencing to me through action, not word, the trustworthiness of what she believed and what she taught me. If you are a Christian parent or a Christian in any position of authority, 
And then just think Christians in general. You don't need to have children to think about this. You see the power of a positive witness in teaching and living out your Christianity in front of your children? You see that as they see your successes and your struggles, but all the while they also see you continuing to trust in Jesus Christ and cling to His Word and teach them to do the same, by God's grace He may use it one day to reveal to your children just how true the gospel really is. I'm living proof of that. I hope that this is reason, Christian, for you to continue in the Scriptures. You may not, you may not be a pastor like Timothy is, but certainly this is applicable to all of us. I hope you see that this is reason to, for you to continue in the Scriptures. People around you, it doesn't have to be your children. It could be, it could be your children, it could be your neighbors, it could be your co-workers. They will see evidence for the sufficiency of Scriptures. And God may use that to bring them to know Jesus. That's the first thing Timothy was to know and recall as he wants him to continue in the Scriptures. It is knowing first from whom he learned it. The second thing he is to know and recall as he continues, or the second reason, is because of Scripture's purpose and function. Scripture's purpose and function. Uh, look there at, we'll just reread the whole entire passage. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here, the second thing you're supposed to see or to remember or recall is Scripture's purpose and function. This is obviously connected to the first reason. What makes Grandma and Mom and Paul so important here is that they taught Timothy the Scriptures. Timothy is to recall not just the teachers merely, not just the teachers merely, but the substance of their teaching. That is the sacred writings, the sacred writings. That was a term that... If you use that term, any first century Jew would recognize that you are talking and referring, about, referring to the Old Testament. Again, from young, Timothy has been taught and has come to know the Scriptures, which are, the Word says, which are able, look there, to make you wise for salvation. Able to make you wise for salvation. That's purpose and function. How does it make one wise for salvation? Well, it is not in the sense that the more you read it, the more saved you will be regardless of if you have faith or not. That's not what he's talking about there. When it says makes wise, it means that Scripture teaches or instructs something about someone, about something. It's that simple. Making wise, it instructs. So think about Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It instructs. Reading it without faith does not automatically, in and of itself, impart faith but reading scriptures, hearing the scriptures could lead one to faith. Faith, belief, trusting in Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary. Paul writes there, look there. Scriptures makes wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. You know, some people think that the Old Testament and Jesus and the New Testament... So you got Old Testament, and here you got Jesus in the New Testament, are two entirely separate books that have little to do with each other. 
Well, friends, you see that what Paul writes here actually doesn't allow us to think that. We're thinking about this scripture, right? What is this scripture thing you, you Christians are talking about? And, or some of us might think, even having grown up in the church, Old Testament is entirely separate from the New Testament. But it's interesting, right, how Paul speaks about the scriptures. Paul talks about the Old, Old Testament scriptures and Christ, their fulfillment. How can he do that here? Well, the Old Testament scriptures spoke of God and his promises, right? So if you think about the Old Testament, it speaks about how God would send the Messiah, his chosen one, to reconcile sinners to God, even though they, we, were the ones to have rebelled against the Creator, right? So there God gives numerous promises of how one day someone would come to come and deliver, and this person would be the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Even though sinners, that is we, we all had rebelled against God and earned for ourselves just punishment, God himself would provide the one who would bear the punishment that his people deserved. Right? Think again of the Messiah, Christ, the chosen one. This is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. And I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to see just what Jesus thinks about the Old Testament for a moment here. This is after Christ has been raised from the dead. And he appears to some of his disciples, and they are sad. Like, they don't, they don't really get what's going on. And look what he says in verse 25. And he said to them, 24, this is 24, 25. Chapter 24, verse 25. Jesus turns up to his sad disciples. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, Old Testament, have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that is me, who, is, who have already, I've already been crucified, I've always been, already been raised from the dead, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's teaching them about the Old Testament. And then you look there at verse 44. Skip over to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's a reference to the whole entire Old Testament. That is an official reference, a way of referring to the whole entire Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's why Jesus says what he says right there. Everything written about me in the law, the prophets and the writings must be fulfilled. The Old Testament pointed to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells of the account of the Christ who came. And in it all, right, as we read the Old Testament and New Testament, our hearts are to be cast onto Christ. What else is there to do, given who Jesus is, but believe and trust? The scriptures reveal to us the way of salvation. And by God's grace, according to the Spirit, he gives people the new birth. He takes his word and plants it into our hearts and causes us to be born again through the living word, through the word of God. It makes wise the simple through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why, again, if you're visiting with us, you're considering Christianity and what Christians are. We live, we are to live upon this book. Certainly we don't do it perfectly, so we confess our sins, go back to the book, trust in Jesus Christ. These are his words that Christians are to feed upon. And it's these words that we as Christians at First Baptist feed upon 
week after week, and Lord willing, day after day. It makes wise the simple through faith in Jesus. How to be restored to the maker, your creator. Friends, you too can know God if you turn from your sin and believe upon him. We have everything we need here. Makes us wise unto salvation, the most important things. And indeed, it is sufficient in life and also in death, which is why Jesus brings along with him eternal life and eternal salvation. Again, we see the sufficiency of Scripture here. Paul says that they are able. They are able. The sacred writings are able. Scripture is able. The law of the Lord is able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. All, wisdom, all worldly wisdom, wisdom of Socrates, Plato, Confucius, all worldly wisdom coming from people dead or alive is finally insufficient in addressing the most pressing of issues of salvation and reconciliation to the Creator. Those are Paul's grand objectives. And when you get salvation and reconciliation to your Creator right, all the other dominoes fall right into place just as they were designed. Right? So when you get salvation or reconciliation to God, understanding who we live under, that's like us setting up this grand elaborate domino scheme and if you, if you get that first domino wrong, you're not going to get very far. Now you, as, as, uh, as we wrestle with just regular life stuff, right? We wrestle with so many stuff and we want to get stuff right, right? We might, be we might be concerned with domino 1,000 or dominoes, you know, 1,000 to 10,000. But if you get the first one wrong, your whole, your whole thing's not going to work. So he says he's bringing up the most important things. Get that first domino right. Here, we're talking about reconciliation with God. And when you get that thing right, all other things fall into place. That doesn't mean you get what you want. That means you learn how to live underneath a good God who has designed us to live underneath his rule. So if you're visiting with us and you're thinking about this making wise unto salvation, here what he's referring to is not just this merely this eternal life thing that's nebulous and we don't really know. He's talking about what it looks like to know your creator and to live under his good rule, trusting him, embracing him, and walking as he has designed us to live. And so in so doing, all sorts of things, things even down to the nitty-gritty about how we use our money, things down to what we do with our guilt on a daily level, things down to how, why do I fear in the midst of the coronavirus? Or if we wrestle with some sort of sin that brings us guilt and shame, all of those things are explained and taken care of as we live life underneath the Creator here. So when you think wise unto salvation, think comprehensive term of what it looks like to live underneath our sovereign God. We see just how comprehensive the Word of God is, thinking about the Scripture that makes us wise to salvation. It does something else, too. Look at verse 16 and 17. Here, in order to encourage Timothy's faithfulness to the Scriptures, Paul expands on what he just said. He expands on the nature of the scriptures. He says there in verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's another purpose. It's another purpose. God's word equips all of God's people for every good work. God's word equips all of God's people for every good work. Certainly makes us wise unto salvation. It teaches us how to live as we wait for final salvation. It shows us what we are to believe as well as how we are to live as Christ's people. 
Here in verses 16 and 17, what is highlighted is Scripture's divine source and God's intended usefulness of the Scriptures. Scripture's divine source. Let's look at that. It says there, all Scripture is what God breathed, as some translations put it. This one puts it here, breathed out by God. It really is just one word in the Greek, and this is, an, this is a good translation, breathed out by God, or God breathed. God breathed would be more of a literal one. It literally is God breathed in the Greek, but one word, two words squished together. And here it's just saying that the ultimate origin is God himself. That it, that is the scripture, was brought into being by a mere breath of God. So you can think back to Genesis 1 and all that he brought into existence by the, his very own breath, the creation. He speaks things into existence. They come into being. So it is with scripture. It is of God. And since it is of God and he tells us what to do, right, since God brought it about, he's just communicating to his people, it comes with it God's authority God, and it's, it's God's trustworthiness. So if you turn over to 2 Peter, turn over to 2 Peter. If you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't know their way around the Bible, help them get to 2 Peter, just turn right a few books. This is another really useful verse to help us understand what this scripture thing is. Not only is it breathed out by God, but Peter has something to say about it too. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Uh, he says there, just start, he, has this, he continues this verse there in 20, this uh, sentence here, knowing that first of all, here's the main point here that I'm getting at, underscore, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Right? It's not by the will of man. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But what happened? How did it come into being? What is it? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right, since it is, it is of God, the Spirit was carrying, carrying those people. And so they wrote, and so therefore it is trustworthy. Scripture is reliable. Right, when it says they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, don't think that right, they were in some sort of trance and God just simply, boom, just put everything in their minds and so they just wrote. No, God still, in God's plan, God uses these men and their personalities so that what they wrote would be what he wanted them to write. So even though Scripture has divine origin, though it is God-breathed, God still uses human authors to produce Scripture. And so Peter writes in a certain way that is very Peter-like. Paul writes in a certain way that ends up being very Paul-like. So don't think that you know, they're like robots. Uh, think that they are writing what they desire to write. Now, there are times in the Old Testament prophets where God says, I want you to say this. Here you go. Um, and you see that very clearly on, on the Old Testament. When you think of these letters, like 2 Timothy, for example, he's, Paul is genuinely writing what he wants to write, and God is, uses him to write Scripture, authoritative, trustworthy, reliable Scripture. And it's not just some Scripture. It's not just some of this Scripture that is God-breathed or certain parts of Scripture that are God-breathed. It is all of Scripture. It's not just the Old Testament, but it's also the New Testament writings as well. If we look at it from a historical perspective, it is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The writings that were recognized as being of God and authoritative were, uh, are here in the New Testament. And this is important, right? So, 
Again, some of you might be examining Christianity and think that, oh, what is this scripture thing? And you think that a bunch of people just sat around the first and second century, like deciding, casting lots, deciding what ought to be in scripture. Right? That's sometimes what, how people imagine that, all, that the Bible came about. Uh, and whatever they decided was in, they also decided was God-breathed. Well, actually, that's not how it worked. That is not how it worked. As the historical accounts and letters were circulated, people already knew, people already recognized them to be authoritative because they came from legitimate sources. If it was from bad sources, or if they had contradicted what they had already known, because they are certainly in the time of where disciples, living disciples, eyewitnesses of Jesus, are still around, and many of them. Right? If these letters came from bad sources or contradicted things or things that were not true or things that were uh, pretended to be written in another person's name, like the apostle, pretending they were rejected. Even in Paul's writings, you can see that he recognizes not only the Old Testament to be scripture, but also other writings that were in circulation at this time. Okay, so some of you guys are exploring Christianity. I hope you find this to be interesting. You know, you're thinking about, like, how did this Bible come to be and why should I trust it? Well, we're dipping into this a little bit right here. Paul himself recognized that at his time there were writings that were not in the Old Testament that were being circulated that were authoritative. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is just one example, by the way, just one example. In this passage, Paul tells Timothy that the, he tells Timothy in the church um, about the importance of paying its pastors. That's not why I bring it up. <laughs> the importance of paying its pastors, that is those who preach the word. What I want you to note is what Paul considers to be scripture. He says there, let the elders, 517 again, 1 Timothy 517, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Here's the point. For the reason is, the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it, is, when it treads out the grain. That ba- he's basically saying, look, uh, you know, like the animals, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, by the way, Old Testament scripture, right? He's quoting from an authoritative source that everybody knew was authoritative. He's saying, look, when you're using an ox to tread out the grain and make grain for yourselves, let the animal eat, right? And that's how he's, he's encouraging pastors to be paid, like I'm an ox, um, But here, notice this, though. Not only does he quote from Deuteronomy, he quotes from somewhere else. He quotes from somewhere else. He says, after the grain passage, the ox and the grain, he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. That's not from the Old Testament. That's Jesus in the New Testament from Luke 10, 7. That means the gospel was in circulation already, most likely. We have every reason to think so. And Paul says, hey, here's, this is what's authoritative in the church. Old Testament verse, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. And what Jesus says here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7. Isn't that fascinating? I think it's fascinating. Um, but it's not just Paul. If you look at the Apostle Peter's, Peter's writings, he too recognizes that certain writings that were already in circulation were to be considered Scripture. I want you to turn over to 2 Peter. Turn over to 2 Peter 3.16.
2 Peter 3.16. He encourages them in 15, right, to, to understand patience. And then he's going to say, right, right, as Paul wrote to you by his wisdom. Just encouraging, look, let's understand patience just as Paul wrote to you. And then he makes this little comment about Paul. That's what I want to highlight here. Verse 15, the end there, our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, you know, let's be truthful, this is the truth, uh, which is why we study, and it's very important to understand this. Which, get this, which the ignorant and unstable, what do they do? They twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter, in his mind, has this understanding of what Scripture is, and he's saying, look, these false teachers, they twist Paul's writings just as they do the other Scripture, meaning that they're both Scripture. So Peter, even in his mind, recognizes Paul's writings authoritative, inspired by God. God breathed. We all should be listening to that, these things. So, friends, they knew, the church knew, that Christ had commissioned certain people to speak and write letters on Christ's behalf in order they might lay the foundation of his very own church. If you have any questions about this stuff, just the reliability of Scripture, uh, come talk to me. There are useful articles that uh, we can point you to, useful books to read, which I find to be greatly uh, encouraging as we think about why should we believe what we believe. Anyways, thinking about div uh, Scripture's divine source, we see that in the Word we have God's authoritative and inerrant will, which speaks to Scripture's sufficiency. Now, in terms of application here, I find this actually really freeing, knowing that in Scripture we have God's authoritative and inerrant will. So therefore, right, I find this really freeing. When it comes to the most foundational and primary things of life, the things that should take up the most space in our heads and in our hearts, that is salvation in Jesus, how to live as a Christian until he returns, no matter the circumstance in life or death, we have God's authoritative and inerrant word to help us. We have all things, as Peter says, for life and doctrine. So the Christian is freed up right here. We're freed to know what it is that pleases God right here. All things for life and doctrine. The way that Paul puts it here is that, look at the scripture there, 2 Peter, or sorry, 2 Timothy. Turn back to 2 Timothy. Peter says we have all things for life and doctrine. What is what does Paul say? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So think of doctrine. Scripture is profitable for teaching the right stuff. Reproof for rebuking the bad stuff, the bad doctrine. And then thinking of life. Scripture is profitable for correcting sinful living, as well as training in righteousness. That is upright living underneath a righteous God. And why is it that God gave it to us? It is that the man of God, Timothy specifically, Christians in general, may be complete, right? Equipped for every good work. For the most important stuff of life. The word of God equips us to live as Christ designed us to live in all situations. So therefore, when it comes to the circumstantial stuff of life, all the secondary stuff, like, should I pursue this job or that? Like, should I go to school, this school, or that school? Should I marry this man or this woman? Should I start this business or that business? Should I buy this house or not? In those, in those types of things that the Word of God does not specifically address in His Word, 
We simply also have freedom in Jesus Christ to make decisions and then act based on general biblical truth and wisdom, regular good old logic, prayer that we would be guided by God's word, and then also just seeking the wisdom from other Christians whom God has placed around us in the church. Having searched out the word for general biblical truth, asked wisdom from other Christians in the church, we can go about our works, all the works that God has planned us to do, for the honor of Jesus Christ. So with the question of let's just take school, for example. No matter what school I go to, we think, right, it changes the conversation. It's how do I work hard for the glory of God, being responsible for the opportunities he has given me and the brain he's given me regarding the job? How can I work hard to the glory of Christ in order to not only support myself and my family, but also other people in the church? Think about business. No matter what business I start, so long as the business is not sinful in and of itself, and certainly there are certain businesses, talk about, let's, you know, you can think of, let's say, uh, selling drugs or something like that. How do I fulfill my responsibilities as a businessman or woman, as an employer, in a way that seeks to benefit those under me and then serve my customers? How do I fulfill my responsibility to the glory of God? Thinking about marrying somebody, pursuing somebody? How do I pursue someone in a way that honors Jesus Christ? And how can I give myself to loving this other person as Christ loved the church? Thinking about buying real estate, for example, the question becomes, how can I use the money God has given me for the honor of Christ and the space that he may be giving me for the honor of Jesus Christ, right? In all those things, we have so much freedom to love God and do what you want, as I say regularly. Loving God, of course, assumes that you are being driven by biblical wisdom and not sin, Loving God means, too, that you are seeking to love Him first and love other people and His church. And then, of course, doing what we want assumes that we are using regular good old logic, seeking wisdom of those around us and not living in sin and living for Jesus. You see, that's a huge benefit of the sufficiency of Scripture. We are freed from looking outside to fortune tellers, witch doctors, palm readers, or awaiting some sort of sense of intuition, the subjective and fallible sense of intuition to kick in or have somebody pray over us in the name of Jesus. This is the benefit of the sufficiency of Scripture. And this is applicable to Timothy and all of the people of God. It's applicable to Timothy because as a shepherd and a leader of God's people, he is to set before them God's Word, hold out for them the very will of God, and live a life that is an example to them in life and doctrine. It's the same scripture that his grandmother Lois and mother Eunice believed as well and had taught him, he then embraced and is to teach others. We know that the good work that Timothy was to do was to fulfill his ministry, pursue Christ-like living. But Christian, you realize that God has prepared works for you to do. Ephesians chapter 2. He himself has designed the Christian life so that in all circumstances... You would live lives for Jesus Christ, representing him and his glory in the gospel. What will equip you for every good work in all seasons and every circumstance as you await final salvation? It is God's word, the words of Jesus, the scriptures. And this is not just for shepherds, right? He's not just writing for Timothy. It's for the sheep as well. Scripture is for the sheep as well. This is exactly why Paul will go on to say, as we see from next week, preach the word of God to God's people. It is for them also. And in so doing, 
All of Christ's people will be equipped to walk in this life, whether in life or in facing death, hoping in the salvation that is to come in Jesus Christ. Christians, we conclude here. I have a question for you. Given Scripture's sufficiency, do you lean upon it? Do you go to it knowing what Paul and Timothy knew about it? Oftentimes Christians do not lean on it rightly because they don't understand it rightly, frankly speaking. Some might think it's a manual or like an encyclopedia for daily living. Some might think the Bible is just a bunch of old, irrelevant stories. Well, of course, if you have the wrong or incomplete understanding of what the Word is, you'll never know what God wants you to know. You'll never lean on it in the ways in which God wants you to lean upon it and continue in it. Let me encourage you to give yourself to reading and understanding the Word. It has been written for our instruction. Even the Old Testament, as Paul says in Romans and in Corinthians, is written for our instruction. Give yourself then, therefore, to reading and understanding it, if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Many of us might give ourselves to reading about the performance of our latest sports heroes. We memorize the stats even. Or we read about, eager to read about Wall Street assessments of that mutual fund you just invested in. Or the latest approach to making your hair more shiny and voluminous. Why are we not giving ourselves to feeding upon God's word as it alone is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Given it equips us for all that God's in, God intends we do here, why would we not? When it comes to personal reading and studying Scripture, I think one of the most useful ways to familiarize yourselves with the Word, apart from just simply reading it, is to go out and buy a good, solid study Bible, like the ESV study Bible, the ESV study Bible. It has these really useful introductions to the books or the letters that were written, the main themes, the structure of the book. Of course, those are not infallible. Those are just a man or one group of men and women. They're a take on what it means and how we can break it down, the main themes, etc. But nevertheless, it's still nevertheless really useful to, in helping us understand what the Bible says and then also how to apply it. It's well worth the cost as it will help you lean upon God and His Word, which is able to make you wise for salvation and is eminently useful that the man of God or any Christian may be equipped for every good work in every season and in every circumstance. Another thing that I encourage you to do is to read the passage of Scripture that's going to be preached on the following Sunday. So if you look at the back of the bulletin, we print it out every week to make sure that you, you all know. So next week, I intend to preach on chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Verses 1 to 8. So study it. Get together with others to read it and study it and to pray through it. Pretend to be like someone who's going to teach it and outline it. Break it down into its different points and see how it's useful, every bit of it, and how you might apply it to your life. It will help you lean upon the sufficient word of God which makes us wise unto salvation and equips the Christian for every good work that he has designed for us to undertake for him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do rejoice in the sufficiency of Scripture. As we have been people, and we know people, 
who are desperately looking for the thing. Desperately looking for the thing that will provide greatest pleasure, satisfaction, deliverance, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, purpose, restoration with you, something to fix earthly relationships, and on and on and on, deliverance from viruses. But Lord, we know that in your word, you give us everything we need for life and doctrine. Lord, we know that this world is a fallen world. And so when it comes to the word of God, we thank you, God. We praise you for being the God who speaks and a God who reveals yourself, a God who meets us in our need, in Jesus and in his word, that we might know the way of salvation, that we would be made wise unto salvation, and that we would know, according to your word, how to make the right steps as we go from this life to the next. Lord, we thank you so much that in these last days, between your first coming and your second coming, you have not left us alone, but that according to your spirit, you have led us into truth by giving us your word, by giving us preachers and teachers, by helping us learn what you want us to learn. And in that, Lord, help us feed upon your word all the way until we see you face to face. Tune our minds and our hearts so that we might hear you and feed upon you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would tune our taste buds, that we might grow in a stronger taste for the, the light that you have given us in your word. Make your word our delight and our meditation all day long. In your name we pray, amen.